Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. And welcome back, or welcome for the first time. Today we're going to be talking about creation versus evolution and why that's a worthwhile discussion to have and what the Bible has to say to contribute to that subject. Now today, because of the immensity of this topic, we're not going to be able to talk about everything that you could ever possibly want to talk about on that, perhaps in a later episode. But today we're mainly just going to talk about some of the presuppositions behind the discussion and then also the biblical theories that are used to interpret Genesis 1 and how different interpreters have theorized the text can be read. And I think that'll be helpful for us to just give a brief overview uh, and also think through that together. So first thing we need to understand is just what the definition of atheistic evolution is. And of course, by using the adjective atheistic, what we're talking about is that there is no God whatsoever. So there is no God. The universe exists apart from any God. And every organism that we see today evolved from much simpler organisms over millions and billions of years. Now, atheistic evolution essentially teaches that everything came from nothing. And that potentially could have some problems if you think about it, that everything we see comes from ultimately nothing. But we'll talk more about that uh, at another time. In thinking through this theory, atheistic evolution, which would be the majority of everything that Western civilization is taught in public school and everything like that, probably the biggest pro for this discussion is that it's claimed a majority of scientists advocate for this. And this is probably true, at least in Western culture, if not in the entire world. So a majority of scientists do advocate for atheistic evolution in saying that, hey, this is the explanation for how the world came to be, and it fits within certain secular narratives. Of course, what I mean by that is that in the secular narrative, there's an expectation that God cannot be the answer for the meaning of the universe. And so if you presuppose that there is no God, then evolution is literally the only explanation that could be possible. Now, obviously, there's some significant problems, I think, with the atheistic, uh, the atheistic belief of evolution. And one of those significant problems is just that it doesn't actually work with all the evidence. Now, there are a lot of resources on this, and we can't go through all of it, but I encourage you to do some research on this. This is the time, the day and time in which we live is just amazing. We have tremendous access to resources through the internet, through journals, everything like that. A lot of this is, is very prevalent now. A lot of good resources out there about DNA, about, uh, some of the geo, geographical and geological things that we would expect if evolution were true and it doesn't match with the narrative. So, the evolution narrative doesn't fit with all of the evidence that we see around us. Now, in addition to that, evolution 
presupposes that there is no God. And by doing that, their presuppositions don't really match with life experience. What I mean by that is in an evolutionary worldview, how do you account for uniformity? And that's really the foundation for science, by the way. You do an experiment, and on the basis of that result of the experiment, you make the assumption that each time you do that experiment, then it's going to turn out the exact same way because life has a uniformity about it. But the problem with that is that if theoretically evolution is true, then uniformity can't be assumed. There is no basis for assuming that each time we do the experiment, it's going to happen exactly the same way. Because if everything's always evolving and changing and things like that, there is no basis for having that knowledge, really, or having that basis for discovering truth in that way. Another thing that evolution doesn't account for is just the the rules of logic. I mean, the statement, for example, that something cannot both exist and not exist at one time, that's a self-evident truth that we hold to, except for the fact that why is that true? I mean, if you push back the question all the way, why isn't that possible? And what we see is there's a a undergirding of of self-explaining power that we have being creatures of God, being created in his image where our minds seize these laws of reason and logic and we use them. And a lot of times we just assume that we can use them and we need to understand that there's reasons why we can because God built them into creation and there are rules by which creation is governed and those don't change. Those don't change at all. So the last one, and probably the most important one, is just the big question of morality. In an evolutionary worldview, if there's just a struggle for survival, the definition of morality has to be subjective. It can't be objective. And this is a big issue if you're talking to people who who are big proponents of atheistic evolution. It's, it's just really important for them to realize that they don't have any standard for objective morality. The, if they're consistent, they would acknowledge that morality ends up being a consensus position. The rule of the majority determines morality, which has some significant problems with it, especially when you talk about being a proponent of the Holocaust or anything like that. What happens when the majority of people indicate, hey, that's okay to to practice genocide or something like that. Obviously, you have really significant problems that way. And this brings up the real point, is that the discussion about evolution is at its core actually a philosophical question. And a lot of times scientists just claim that, oh yeah, all the, all the rest of the scientists believe that evolution is true. But in reality, evolution is, is, is not just a debate about the evidence. It's actually much more than that. It's a debate about a worldview at its core. And there's so many inconsistencies in an evolutionary worldview that it just does not adequately give the answers to the questions that are really important in life. Like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Why is everything wrong? 
evolution has no answers to those questions, and each worldview must answer those questions. For a good book on this, I would point you to Jason Lyle's book, Ultimate Proof of Creation. Jason Lyle is a extraordinarily brilliant astrophysicist, but in his book, Ultimate Proof of Creation, one of the things he talks about is just the fact that evidence can be interpreted in many different ways. And so it's not the best to argue with people on the basis of evidence because you can interpret it through your lens. You always, we're all biased. In other words, we see things the way we want to see them. We see a fossil supporting our theory. We see lots of evidence that way. Now, I'm not saying it's worthless to talk about evidence because I think there is some value to that. But I agree when Lyle says that the important thing is to break it down to actually foundations and see, is your worldview actually consistent? Are you actually consistent in how you deal with these questions? Because if your foundational worldview isn't even consistent, you have no basis for making these kinds of decisions. You know, this is, I think, a really good example of how we as Christians can really seize many good witnessing opportunities in talking to people about evolution. It doesn't have to be something that you stay away from. In fact, I was really impressed uh, a couple months ago. I watched Ray Comfort's video, The Atheist Delusion, and he just does a really good job talking to people about DNA. And DNA is such an amazing thing to study. And there's actually a book, by the way, um, a New York Times bestseller by Stephen Meyer called Darwin's Doubt. And he also wrote another one called, uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. It's all about, uh, it's all about, oh, the signature in the cell, I think is the name of it. And it's both those books talk about how DNA can't have information added to it, how there's actually no possible way evolution can work with DNA. And just talking about how Darwin's theory would be laughed at by, by people who knew about DNA. And that's why Darwin's theory only made sense to him because he didn't have an idea of what DNA, how DNA worked and everything. So I encourage you to read something like that. This, this, uh, I think Meyer got his PhD from Cambridge, does really good work out there and makes really good arguments on an academic level for why evolution is just, it just makes no sense. But on a, on a person to person basis, Ray Comfort takes that same kind of idea, talks about DNA to people on the street. And at the end of the conversations, they're saying, yeah, I guess, you know, it doesn't seem possible that we could have evolved, you know, and he's just talking to him there, uh, interviewing him saying, Hey, what do you think about this? Like, you know, this is true about DNA. So do you think that, what do you think about evolution now? And so people are having their eyes open that way. I think it's, uh, it's just a great opportunity to talk to people about that. So a couple other resources for you to, to be pointed to in that direction. You have Answers in Genesis. That's a great website to be looking for. And then you also have Creation Ministries International. Those uh, those are great uh, websites to be aware of. They put out a lot of good resources. Now, obviously, I talked a little bit about atheist evolution there and talked about how it's incompatible with uh, the Christian worldview and it's inconsistent on its own. But there are a lot of people in the Christian community who hold to a kind of theistic evolution. And they'll cite a lot of the same evidence saying, hey, you know what, the scientist community majority rules. They all say that there's evolution, so we better get on board with this train. Now, that 
I think that's not the best way of going about it. And there are a lot of problems with holding to a theistic evolution viewpoint. And we're going to talk about some of them biblically, but just as a, as a couple side notes on the whole topic in general, theistic evolution is rejected wholesale. Well, I can't say wholesale. Oh, most people would reject the, the stipulations that theistic evolution puts on atheistic evolution. In other words, all the scientists who hold to evolution would, would say, you know what, you're just really forcing, trying to get your God into this, and it's not working for you. And the reason is because we have to have a literal Adam who is created by God, otherwise there's a lot of Christian theology that doesn't work. Uh, additionally, we don't, so, so in order to be orthodox, in order to, to hold to biblical theology as it's laid out in scripture, we have to, even if you hold to a theological evolution point of view, you have to acknowledge a special creation of man and, and animals as laid out in Genesis 1 and things like that. And that, that's problematic and rejected by atheistic evolutionists. Now, on the other hand, uh, you also have problems such as death before sin. If evolution is true, evolution is built upon the catalyst of death, and that can be problematic. And then also many, many theistic evolutionists deny the historicity of Adam, and obviously we run into some big theological problems there. And we could talk more about any of those issues, but I just want to say as a whole there are problems just big picture with with uh, holding to a kind of evolution even if you try to add god to the picture however there are christians who do so and there are multiple ways they try to get the biblical text to make sense in light of that and so what i want to try to do really briefly is just walk through some of these interpretations the way that they interpret genesis 1 and just give some brief responses it's worth knowing because Anybody who is in church will will be aware because here's the issue: you have to make scripture line up with with evolution somehow if that's what you're going to do. Because on the surface, a plain reading of scripture would seem to speak very specifically about creation. And so, in order to make it line up, there's a couple different ways you can do that. One way in which you can do that is hold to what's known as the day age theory of creation. Now, what that means is that each day listed in Genesis 1 and its creation is, isn't referring to a 24 hour period, but it's referring to a long period of time. That could be thousands of years, millions of years, billions of years, whatever. It could just refer to a long period of time. Now, scripture does use day like we do in English. Scripture does use day in multiple ways. It doesn't just have to uh, refer to 24 hours. In fact, in, in the phrase, oh, any day now, that's not talking specifically about 24 hours. It's just saying like any time now. So we use day similar to that. One of the major problems with that though is that the, well, for example, on day three, you have, you have plants being created, but on day four, you have the sun being created. And if you have a long period of time in between there, you have plants existing without the sun, which could be potentially problematic. Uh, it's not an open shut case, but just from what we know of photosynthesis and all that, it could be very problematic. Also, 
it's very hard to argue that the authors of scripture or the people who were first reading that would have, would have understood it that way. The second major theory that is used is known as the gap theory. And that teaches that there's a lengthy time gap between verses one and two in Genesis one. You have the statement in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse two, between verse two, there's a gap. And then it would be translated, then, uh, then the earth was formless and void and or became formless and void and darkness was on the face of the deep, you would see that as the follow-up to that. And so obviously that allows for the time that you would need in, in evolutionary theory. But the problem with that, and we could go into a lot of details on this, but I'll just say it briefly, is that if anybody knows Hebrew, it just, Hebrew can't read that way. Uh, the Hebrew verse, or verse 2 of Genesis 1 there, begins with what's known as a disjunctive clause in Hebrew. And without having to know Hebrew, I'll just tell you that that doesn't, that doesn't give sequential information. In other words, that doesn't uh, say what's coming next or anything like that. It functions more as a parenthesis, if you will, or a par- parenthetical information further describing what's going on, a circumstantial or background information. So it's linked with verse 1 as to what's going on. And so if anybody knows Hebrew, they don't hold to that theory. The third major theory, and this is really probably most prevalent among evangelicals, is what's known as the literary framework approach. And this basically teaches that the whole design of Genesis 1 and 2 isn't, isn't meant to communicate material origins, but it's meant to communicate function or to teach function uh, about how creation is to be viewed. And I guess using creation there. So proponents of this view would argue that Genesis 1 and 2 isn't actually speaking about creation at all. It's just giving a story with which we we can understand our purpose in life. Essentially, that's that's what the teaching would be. And one of the big positives of this theory, if I could say it that way, is that the theory does match with specific evidence in the text. For example, there is a heavy emphasis on function and structure within the creation narrative. For example, if you go through the days of creation, you'll see a very interesting order given you'll see days one through three describing the locale of creation being created. And then days four through five, you'll see that being filled. So for example, in day one, you have the capacity for light created. You know, you don't have the sun, the moon, the stars created then, but you have the capacity for light. And then in day four, which corresponds to day one, you actually have the luminaries created. You have the sun, the moon, and the stars created then. Same thing in days two, two and five. In day two, you have the capacity for sky and water created. In day five, you have the sea creatures and air creatures created. So you have the capacity and then you have the filling. And then in day three, you have the capacity of the land and sea created. And in day six, you have land creatures and humans created. So there is a tremendous amount of order and ingenuity in the creation process. But I would go ahead and say that that does not mean that material origins is not a part of the equation. It just means that there is an emphasis on functionality there, to be sure. Now, so there are a lot of, a lot of good observations made by those who hold to the literary framework approach. 
but their emphasis on function doesn't have to be to the exclusion of material origins. I think God is capable enough. In fact, I think he does this a lot where he operates in a literal way in, in history. And because of that, there is a, a motivation or a function that is implied in what he does. And I think that that's fine to understand. Also, one of the major problems with just, well, one of the major problems positively, I guess, let me, let me back up. One of the major problems with, with theories that try to insert all of this time or to erase the normal meaning of day is just the, the rest of scripture and how it interprets this creation narrative. For example, Exodus 20, 8 through 11 in the Ten Commandments there refers to the week of creation, uh, as a, as a model for why Israel is to observe the Sabbath. On six days you shall labor and then you shall rest and you shall not do labor on that day. And the reason is for God created in six days on the seventh day he rested. And that's an important model. Now, if Israel's reading that, they wouldn't have understood that as saying, oh yeah, there were, there were seven or there were six really long periods of time and then God rested a really long period of time. No, they would have genuinely understood, okay, the creation week is like our week. We are going to model our week off of that creation week. So it's, it's pretty clear even from early on in Exodus that the, the Israelites were going to understand that as 24-hour literal days. In addition, the Hebrew noun for day, yom, always refers to a literal 24-hour day when it's used in the singular, which happens 13 times in Genesis. And not only that, I mean, you also have the descriptive phrase in Genesis 1 over and over again that says there was evening and there was morning the second day, the third day, fourth day, stuff like that. You realize, of course, that by describing this event as evening and morning, now we're getting even more specific saying that there's evening and there's morning. And what are we to do with that? Now are we to allegorize that saying, well, evening is, you know, 500 years, morning is five. We can't do that. It's obvious that these telltale signs are picking up the normal sequence of a day. And also one other thing is that when you look at the use of day, yom in Hebrew, whenever it's numerically qualified in scripture, it is not used in a figurative sense. And by the way, there's a article written by McCabe, M-C-C-A-B-E, which it's an academic uh, article on on the use of yom in the Bible, uh, talking, arguing for a literal use of day in Genesis 1. He, he makes a lot of really good arguments. And, uh, if, if you want to wade through more of an academic argument for that, that's definitely a place, place to look. So with that information in mind, it seems the best understanding of the days in Genesis would be a literal 24-hour day. I mean, that matches with what we see at the very beginning of Genesis 1, with Genesis 1 and 2. It matches with the normal use of the Hebrew word yom, which is used for day. It coincides with the phrase evening and morning. It coincides with other scriptures such as Exodus 20, 8 through 11, talking about 
uh, how the Israelite week is, is modeled after creation week. All these things align with just a normal understanding. Now, that being said, obviously we, we would be quick to acknowledge that there are a lot of questions that need to be answered if that's the case then. For example, one thing that just jumps to my head is what about the radiometric dating for, for rocks and things like that? I mean, most geologists would say, oh yeah, it's a slam dunk case that there are, I mean, we just date things to millions and billions of years old. And that's just, that's just how it has to be. Now, this is going to have to wait till a different episode to talk about details about this, but I'll just give you a little something right now is even, oh, I think it was in September last year in 2016. I think it was September. It may have been a little, little later than that, but you can look it up. There was an article in the Atlantic, which is not a Christian friendly uh, resource and it was basically all about how the method of dating the dating the earth which is I don't know if a lot of people know this but actually the the way that the the date of the earth comes about is partially through dating moon rocks on the moon so when the astronauts went there got samples things like that you date those because that coincides with the theory of the universe's expanse and all that stuff and because the moon, because of its place in the universe, doesn't have as much weather to ruin its surface and move things around. So people hypothesize that we can date our, our age, so to speak, off of, off of moon rocks. And so in this article, The Atlantic, there were these major scientists. I think one was from UCLA and he was just saying, yeah, our whole theory on that is pretty much shot. I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying there's no, he was saying in the article, there was no basis for making those assumptions. We made a ton of unworkable assumptions and it's basically an insult to science to assume that those were, those were legitimate assumptions. And that's a pretty significant statement by a secularist who just acknowledges, yeah, we're, we weren't being consistent with scientific findings in dating things. So all that to say is that there is a le- there is evidence even from a secular point of view that the dating of our world millions and billions of years and things like that is not set in stone. Uh, there's been a lot of assumptions made, uh, and in fact, it's interesting that the dates for the old dates for Earth actually came about even before evidence. It was a part of the theory before anybody brought evidence. In. And so it was already assumed that it was millions, if not billions of years old. And they just keep pushing it back the more time they need. So all that to say is just because this literal 24-hour day interpretation of Scripture matches with our normal reading of Genesis 1, and just because that's in complete contradiction to, quote, the scientific consensus, unquote, doesn't necessarily mean anything because... First of all, there's not really a scientific consensus. And second of all, there's also a lot of problems with uh, that information. So in any case, I think evolution is worth talking about because it really is the backbone of our secular society today. It's it's their religion. And it's it's worth challenging people on the presuppositions at times. And so even though everyone in our culture is just inundated with that mantra, evolution is fact, evolution is fact, in reality there are a lot of problems with it. And also, in the church especially, we need to be 
very consistent and clear that Genesis 1 doesn't line up with any of the theories that would give room for evolution. It's it's really an impossible task to to try to squeeze evolution into Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I know I if if you believe in theistic evolution or anything like that, I haven't convinced you of that. It's not it wasn't really my goal in this episode to provide overwhelming evidence to convince you. I'm just giving a broad survey. It may leave us later episodes to really talk about some of the key issues involved, and I'd be happy to do that. I don't want you to think that I think this episode solves all the dilemmas or questions. I'd be happy to hear from you and talk about things specifically if we need to. This is definitely something that is worth talking about. So that'll wrap it up for today. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. If you have any comments or questions, please email them to me at peter at petergaming.com. If you want to find out more information on the podcast or just about me, go ahead and visit petergaming.com. For more information on Shepherd Seminary, where I teach, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, shalom.